Let me ask you, how many of you um, sometimes post on Facebook? Okay, how many of you stalk Facebook? I don't post because I don't figure anything I have to say is worth it, but I'll watch. Have you noticed that some people seem to like to give one-liners that they think encompasses all truth? And that when people challenge it, they actually become defensive and angry about it? Have you noticed that? Um, I want to give you this morning a one-liner that without a doubt encapsulates all truth for all time. And you should write this down, okay? This is important. These are for your notes. This truth that captures all truth everywhere at all times is simply this. The number one cause of problems in the world is immaturity. What do you think? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I could think, well, what about evil? Do you think evil's a problem in the world? Yeah. Do you think sin is a problem in the world? Yeah. What about Satan? Do you think Satan has any problems in the world? Okay, so maybe it's not 100% accurate. But is it not accurate that sometimes immaturity is a problem for you? Is it? Are you ever immature? Let me, let me ask it this way. How many of you have problems in the workplace sometimes? And when you boil it all down, is the cause of some of those problems immaturity, whether on your part or somebody else's? How about problems in your marriage? I know none of you guys ever have any problems in your marriage, just me. But does immaturity ever cause you any problems in your marriage? You know, immature thoughts, immature words, immature attitudes. Is it possible that in your life, and yes, in my life, sometimes immaturity causes us some problems that we don't like. Did you know that it's God's will for us to grow up? Did you know that? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. You don't have to turn there, but you can look later. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 says, Let us go on to maturity. Let us grow up. So if, if I could entitle this message at all, it would be very simply, grow up. Now, you could take that like, would you just finally grow up? Or you can just say, hey, God is giving us all an opportunity to grow up just a little bit more because of the word that comes today. In fact, in the book in which we're going to look, the writer says this, receive the implanted word with meekness, for it has the power to save your soul. That's what he says. So what I want you to do this morning, before we even open the word, is I want you to bow your heads for just a moment and just say, Father, I purpose to receive your word today. doesn't matter who it comes to. I'm going to receive your word. So do that just for a moment. Bow your heads and say, I, I'm going to receive. I'm going to receive. Okay. Hebrews 6.1. Let us go on to maturity. So what is maturity? How can we define maturity? Well, I would suggest that maturity is tough to define. It, it's one of those things that are better caught than taught. But I think I can tell you a couple of things that maturity is not. 
I think sometimes that's easier to say what something is not than what something is. Maturity is not a matter of age. Do you know that there are 50-year-olds that are immature? It's not a matter of even how long you've been a Christian. Because there's a lot of Christians out there who have been Christians for 30, 40 years who are still very immature in terms of their faith. Walt Disney said this, Growing old is mandatory. Growing up is optional. Right? A lot of people, you you don't have any choice. You're growing older every day. But whether you grow up is kind of up to you. It's like I, I saw a meme recently on Facebook and it said this, I've given it a lot of thought and I don't think this whole adult thing is going to work for me. A definite choice to say, I'm not going to grow up. I don't like this whole thing of responsibility. God's ideal is that as we grow older, we actually grow more mature. That's what God's purpose is for us. So, growing older, age is not a determiner of maturity. Another one that's not an issue of maturity is a matter of appearance. Have you ever noticed that some people just look more put together than you do? You know, like when you get up in the morning and you have your bed head? You know, you know what I mean. They get up and they look like they are walking out of a fashion magazine. You think, how did they do that? It's kind of like the people that get to play doctors on TV. There's just something about their demeanor, how they look, that makes them look professional. And then there's always got to be this little disclaimer. I'm not a doctor. I just play one on TV. Well, there's a lot of people in life who look very mature, who look like Christians, but that's a far cry from what they live like at home. The appearance doesn't match up with the reality. Maturity is not an issue of achievement or accomplishment. There's a lot of people who make a lot of money and who reach high positions who are not mature. Just look at some of our movie stars. Look at some of our politicians, and that should tell you that just because you get a position doesn't mean you're necessarily mature. And maturity really has little to do with education or academics. I don't care how many degrees you have after your name. You can have so many degrees that they call you Dr. Frankenstein, and it doesn't make you mature. Maturity is not based upon those things that often people around you and people in the world will esteem as being the value system. So what is maturity? I believe there's a book in the Bible that actually is like a manual for maturity, and it is the book of James. It, ends, it, it comes towards the end of your Bibles. For those of you that want to turn there, it, it's like towards the very, and not quite, but almost there, and it's a small little five-chapter book. But in the book of James, James, who is the author, he's the half-brother of Christ. They had the same mother, but obviously not the same father, because who was Jesus' father? God himself. James uses the word maturity five times in five chapters. So James is all about maturity. How we can take this thing that we call faith and actually make it work for us and to make us become more mature. So over these next weeks, we're going to take some time and look at the book of James. 
And we're going to see what are the things that James defines as maturity. And if God's Word is living and active, that's what it says in Hebrews, God's Word is living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide between joints and marrow, soul and spirit. If it's got that kind of power, it behooves us to understand what his word says to us about this issue of maturity. So would you look at James chapter 1? We're going to be going through that. If you have your Bibles, James chapter 1, we're going to begin at verse 1 and work our way through, and it will be up on the screens for you. <coughs> James, a bondservant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, now he's going to tell you who he's writing to, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. He's referring back to Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, when a persecution arose that was of such a level, such a degree, that Christians had to scatter all over the whole world for fear of their lives. And James is writing to these believers and talking to them about troubles that they were having in their lives, which ought to give us some comfort to know. If those early believers had troubles, it ought not shock us that every once in a while, we, too, have troubles. He says, greetings, my brethren. So we're talking to Christians. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, there is a popular idea today, which I have heard espoused just in this past week, which is that if you are a Christian, if you are a born-again believer in God, if you are following the way of Jesus faithfully, you should not have any problems. If you have problems, they are a sign that you're doing something wrong. There is a belief out there that your problems, by definition, mean you're not being faithful to God at all. Because if you were faithful to God, God has conquered all of the problems of this world, and you should have no problems. And I want to suggest to you that though that sounds wonderful, that sounds like a great ideal, it's unbiblical. It's not what God's Word says. Verse 2. Some of your translations might say, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Some of your translations might say that. But the Greek word that you use there is not about having like some sort of lustful thoughts or anything like that. It's about having tests and trials that come into the life of a believer as you go through your daily life. In fact, the Greek word that is used there is parasmos. And it literally means to put to the proof. In other words, he's saying things come up that actually prove what's inside of a person. Uh, the world says it like this, crisis makes a man. And I want to suggest to you that that's just not true. Crisis does not make a man. Crisis reveals what's in a man already. And so that's what James is saying. He says, God allows things to come into our lives that it might test or prove What's really inside of us? You can't escape it. There's going to be troubles all over. And so James says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing, so you have to know something. There's some things that you need to be aware of, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect, there's that word maturity, it's the word in the Greek for maturity, your perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
James tells us there are some things we need to know. So what I want to give you really quickly this morning are four facts of life about these trials or these struggles, these challenges, these troubles that James refers to. So if you're taking notes, number one, the first thing we need to see from James chapter one is that problems are inevitable. Problems are inevitable. Notice he doesn't say, my brethren, count it all joy if you fall into trials. He says, when you fall into various trials, they are going to come. Jesus said in John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to me, spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Problems aren't an elective in life. You can't audit life. You're either in or you're not. And if you're in, James tells us you're going to have some troubles. You're going to have some trials, some struggles that are going to come your way. Psalms 34, 19 says this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Acts 14, 22, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. No one is immune. Every one of us as believers are going to have trials and tribulations. We're going to have struggles. We're going to have problems. Problems are not a symptom of a sinful life. They're actually a symptom that you are alive and that you're in the world. You don't ever need to pray and ask God to send you some trouble so that you can actually become more mature. They're just there. They seek you out. So, number one, problems are inevitable. Number two, problems are unpredictable. He says, when you fall into various trials, the word fall, or some of your translations might say face, is the Greek word parapipto. And it literally means to fall into something unexpectedly. It's a sailor's term. And it means you're going along in your boat in an area which is supposed to have no problems, and suddenly you found yourself grounded on a sandbar that should not have been there. That's the term that he uses. It's something that comes up into your life unexpectedly. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it says, the man fell among thieves. It's like you're walking along and you fall into a pit. You don't expect it to be there. And it's a trap that is set for you to bring you down into it. Trials aren't something you schedule. It's not like you can say, God, I'm doing really well in my faith today. Today would be a good day for a trial. You can't plan it. You can't put it into your schedule. It reminds me, um, I did my uh, uh, internship at Elam. Uh, I Everybody at Elam had to go on like this internship, and I did mine in New York City at uh, Teen Challenge. At that time, David Wilkerson had been running it, and he had just turned it over to his brother, Don Wilkerson. But the story arose like this, and I don't know if it was true or not or somebody made it up, but it was an interesting story. There was this guy who had to ride the subway every single day, but he had this problem. He had terrible motion sickness. 
So what he would do is he would make sure that when he got on the subway, he would stand in the very middle of the train so he couldn't see anything on either side and he could even pretend he wasn't moving at all. But one day he got done with lunch and had to get back on the subway to get back to work and he got on and when he got on, he was forced to the very door, pressed against the door which had glass windows in it. So as the train is moving, he's seeing all this stuff flash by and he's getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And finally, they get to their destination. The doors open. And this guy who has been standing there at the door waiting to get onto the train has this guy who is standing on the train with motion sickness open the door and he vomits all over him. That's kind of what James is saying. You can't plan on this stuff. It just happens to you. James also raises this issue of why do we have problems in the world at all? Didn't Jesus conquer the world? He says, I've overcome the world. Why do we have problems at all? Well, I think, number one, we have problems because we're living in a fallen world. The Scripture says that when sin entered, it entered not just you and me, and so that we needed salvation, it entered the world itself. There is stuff going on in the world, in this planet, that was never God's intent. That is a result of the fall of mankind and the entry of sin. Such that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, the whole of creation is groaning, waiting for God to finally make all of this right. So the first reason why we all have problems is we live in a fallen world. The second reason why we all have problems is that we have an enemy. We have an enemy. Let me just say this to you as clearly as I know how. Satan never awakens if he ever sleeps. He never awakens and has good in mind for you. Satan hates your guts. Satan wants to kill and destroy you. Now, you who are redeemed in Christ, you don't have to worry about that. God, it's not like there's, it's like the, the world paints this picture, and sometimes Christians do. Like God and Satan are in this battle, and oh, it's a close one, be careful out there. It's not like that. With one thought, God could vanquish the enemy. That's not the issue. But he's here for a set time, for a set reason. And part of that is he allows him free reign to some extent under his authority in order that we can know what it is to go through trials. In fact, the scripture tells us in Peter that the enemy is like a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. He's not a lion. He's just like that. He roars a lot, very loud but he has no power. But that's part of the reason why we have problems in this world is that we have an enemy who wants to trip you up, who wants to make you fall into a hole that you did not know was there. He hates every single one of us. And so he wants us to lose faith. It's kind of like where Jesus tells the parable of the sower. And he says, some seed fell by the wayside. And it says, after a little bit of time, because of tribulation because of problems they actually stumbled in their faith and that's what the enemy wants he wants to cause you to lose faith in God number three so we've looked at first of all they're inevitable problems are inevitable and they're unpredictable number three problems are varied they're varied they come in all kinds of shapes and sizes you don't ever get bored with problems because it seems like they're always different. There's always something new on the horizon. I never faced that before. 
Uh, the word various, by the way, is the Greek word. It's interesting. It really is. It's the Greek word from which we get our words polka dot. And it literally means different sizes, different shapes, different varieties, different intensities. That's how problems come. They're always coming different. They're, they're kind of like Baskin Robbins. They got more than 31 flavors out there. You never are going to face the same thing again and again. Unless, like me, you fail the test and God lets you go through it again just to see that you can grow, you can mature, you can change. So, they're varied. And finally, number four, problems have potential, which is where we're going with this whole teaching over these weeks. Problems have potential. He says, let patience have its perfect work. In other words, patience is produced by the trying of our faith. It produces something. What does it produce? Well, very quickly, I believe patience and the trial of our faith has the ability to produce at least three things. Number one, problems purify my faith. James uses the word testing, and that word testing is actually a, a jeweler's term. And it talks about taking gold or silver and putting it in this crucible and heating it and heating it and heating it until the impurities, the dross it's called, raises to the top. And then you can scoop it off. And once all of the impurities are gone, it's said that they could look into the cauldron and they could see the reflection of themselves purely. That's the word that James uses. He says, you are going to be tested. Job put it this way. He has tested me through the refining fire and I have come out as pure gold. The first things that trials do is they test the depths of our faith to show us what's the real stuff in us. Uh, years ago, one of my favorite Bible teachers was Bob Mumford. And Bob Mumford talked about a time that he went through one of the most challenging trials of his whole life. And he says he knew he was facing it. This was like a life and death situation. He knew he was facing it. But he said, going into it, I felt like I went in with an 18-wheeler full of faith. I knew God was going to do big things. He said, by the time I came out the other side of it, I had about a teaspoon of faith left. But it was the real stuff. That's what trials do. They show us what's real inside of us. Somebody posted on Facebook once a saying that I liked, and it says this, Christians are a lot like tea bags. You don't know what's inside of them until you drop them in hot water. Until they're put in a place where there are trials to find out what's really inside of you. When things don't go your way, how do you react? When problems crop up one after another, how do you respond? It reveals what's inside of us. Problems purify your faith. Number two, problems fortify our patience. The testing of your faith produces patience. The word that James uses for patience, by the way, is a Greek word that means to go beyond the breaking point without breaking. To go beyond the breaking point without breaking. It means to bear up under it. Um, this isn't about some sort of grit your teeth and hold on to your chair kind of mindset. That's not what he's using as the word here. He's talking about the kind of patience that looks it in the face and says, go ahead, make my day. Because I know that when I come through this, God's going to have worked something good inside of me. That's the kind of patience he's talking about. He's not talking about just survival. Getting through, well, I'll hold on to the end, 
You know, I, I think about this picture of this kitty cat holding on the bar and it's saying, hold on to the end. That's not the word that he's using for patience. He's using a Clint Eastwood word. Go ahead. Make my day. Because when you bring all these trials against me, you're going to see something come out that you never wanted to come out of me. Because God's going to work something good in me. It's, it's this thing that says, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. You can't dissuade me. I have found that Jesus is the only good thing in life. And I'm in it for the long haul. You can't change my mind. So it fortifies my patience. And number three, it sanctifies my character. It has the potential. When we talk about maturity, what we're talking about is it has the potential of making me more like Jesus. That's what it's about. And do you know that's what God's intention is throughout the whole of the Bible? James puts it this way, knowing, knowing, knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's God's long-range goal for your life, that you would be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. In other words, God wants us to look like Jesus by the end of our lives. Did you know that? God's intent is that you look more and more every day like Jesus. You look like him. I was in a situation this week that was very, very challenging. And uh, I have a nephew who's in some challenges, but um, he is six foot five. He's a big kid, big. And I walked into this situation, and people said, well, they're going to know that you're related. I said, how are they going to know you're related? He said, well, you guys look a lot alike. I said, really? He's six foot five. He's big, strong, and I'm not. And they said, no, no, no. Your face is what looks alike. And that's kind of what God is saying to us. He's saying, at the end of your life, he wants you to look more and more like Jesus. That's what these trials are about. They're an opportunity, if you handle them correctly, for you to become more like Jesus. Not to wimp out and to quit. To run away and say, I'm going to take my ball and go home. It's to be more and more like Jesus. God is much more interested in our character than he is in us being comfortable. There, there's all kinds of talk today about grace. And you know, if you've been here any length of time at all, you know that I love God's grace. I love that God is merciful and kind and gracious to us. But a grace that doesn't change our character isn't really grace at all. It's license. Grace is intended by God to change us from the inside out. So if you're laying claim to grace over law, great! As long as that grace works transformation inside of you and you become more and more like Jesus. Now what I want to do just in these last couple of minutes is I want to give you ways that James tells us how to handle problems well and out of it to look more and more like Jesus. He tells us right away how to handle your problems. Number one, the first thing he says is you should rejoice. He says rejoice. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or various trials. 
Now, don't misunderstand James. He's not saying put a fake smile on your face and be some kind of phony Pollyanna. He's not saying fake it till you make it. He's not saying what a lot of Christians say. A lot of Christians say, don't ever say that you've got a problem. Don't ever say you're sick. Don't ever say you've got any kind of issue because that's not faith. James isn't saying that at all. James says, look that stuff in the face. See it for what it is. But still rejoice. It's not even an issue of masochism. Oh, yay, thank God I get to suffer today. That's not what this is about. He is saying, no, you get to see that God can actually work something in and through this. One of the most misunderstood verses in the whole Bible is 1 Thessalonians 5.18. It says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Do you want to know God's will for your life? It's for you to give thanks in everything. Now notice, though, he doesn't say to give thanks for everything. I don't think God ever said that you ought to give thanks for that accident that you were in. God doesn't say you should give thanks for that death of a loved one, or for war, or pestilence, or disease, or any of that stuff. I think that would be unkind. I think that would be cruel. It would be ungracious. It would be heartless. And that's not the character of God. He is saying, even in the midst of all of that kind of stuff, you can still be thankful to God, knowing that God is going to cause good to come out of it. God didn't cause it, but He causes good to come out of it. For my good and for his glory. It doesn't matter where your problems come from even. Maybe your problems come because of your poor decisions. Maybe your problems come because of the enemy. Maybe your problems come because of the society around you. It doesn't matter where your problems come from. God can still make all grace to abound to you and cause good to come out of it. So that he says, count it all joy. Count it. Consider it. That's the word that he uses. It's a word that means a deliberate, intentional assessment. I have decided that though I am facing this struggle, though I am facing this problem, I am going to believe that God is going to work in it. If he doesn't change it right away, it's okay because he's going to work something inside of me. See, a lot of times when we're praying, we're praying for God to change the situation when the truth is what we ought to do is say, God, change me in the midst of this situation. Change me from the inside out. Consideration, that's the word that he uses, count it, is a choice that you make. Uh, Viktor Frankl uh, was a Jewish psychologist that was put in one of the death camps in World War II in Germany just because he was a Jew. He says this, and I'm quoting from him directly. He says, They stripped me naked. They took everything. My wedding ring, my watch, everything. I stood there completely naked. And all of a sudden realized at that moment that although they could take everything away from me, my wife, my family, my possessions, they could not take away my freedom to choose how I was going to respond. That's the choice you and I have. We can't choose to opt out of problems. Problems come. We can choose how we respond to problems. Psalmist said this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually on my lips. Do you know the only difference between bitter and better is the letter I? You get to choose. I have a choice 
how am I going to respond to this situation? And I can get bitter, I can get angry, I can get resentful, or I can choose to allow God to change me and to make me better. So the first thing that James says is that we're to rejoice. The second thing he says, we should request. We, we should request. He said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith without doubting. Of all times that you should be asking or praying, it should be when you're in the midst of a problem. And what should you ask for? James tells us. He said, ask for wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is seeing things from God's perspective. Seeing God's vision in that situation. You're asking for wisdom so that you don't waste this opportunity to grow and to become more mature. Wisdom helps us to get the most out of our trials. And this is where, this is what I say to people all the time. Instead of asking why, we do that all the time. Why am I going through this? Why me? Instead of asking why, why don't you ask what? What are you doing in me through this situation, God? What would you like to see come out of this in my life? So instead of saying why, how about we say what can I learn from this? Wisdom is seeing things from God's perspective. Where is God in this situation? What is God doing here at this very moment in this situation? What's he doing in me through this situation? Then I think it would be crazy to think that you also don't ask God for help, for relief from this problem, for rescue. Remember, Jesus was the one who told us in his Lord's Prayer that we should pray, God, lead us not into temptation. Why would he even have to say that? The scripture tells us clearly God doesn't tempt us. He's talking about trials. He's saying, God, you know our frame. You know we're weak. You know we struggle with stuff. Don't leave us in this trial too long. We need your help. So I absolutely pray for wisdom. But I think it's not inappropriate to also say, God, would you rescue me here? I'm weak, but my trust is in you. Do what you have to in me. Let it work its perfect work, but don't let it go one moment longer than needs to be. So we pray for relief. And then number three, he says rejoice, request, and then he says relax. Let him ask in faith. Faith is relying on God's character and his ability, his power. He's not a mean God just looking to see if he can't trip you up. It's not a trick question. He's allowing things to happen in your life so that you can become more and more like Jesus. Doubt has less to do with head knowledge and more to do with our sense of being secure in God's love. It's kind of like the way I picture this is this, you know, uh, and maybe this wasn't your thing, but I can remember when we were kids, there was a commercial out there with this girl who was a hippie. She had on a hippie dress. She was in Hawaii. And she's got this flower in her hand, and she's pulling off petals. She's saying, he loves me. What's next? He loves me. He loves me not. And she goes around the outside until it's all, and she's hoping that she ends with the last one saying, he loves me. Well, I would suggest that's how a lot of Christians lead their lives. If things are going well, he loves me. It's good. Everything's wonderful. We go through our problems. He loves me not. But that's kind of how we do it. 
And you guys can shake your head. You can say, oh, no, not me. But you do it. I do it. We measure God's love for us by how easy things are, how comfortable, how fun. And we even say things like this. How are you doing? Well, actually, I'm doing pretty well. It's a, it's a good season for me. I came out of a bad season, but it's a good season. How are you determining the season again? Oh, yeah, that was problems. I've come out of my problems now. Now I'm in a good season. But the truth is, God loves us all the time. There's never a point in time when God's being mean to you, when God doesn't love you. So he's saying we need to learn to relax in God's love, his care for us, but also his power, his ability. God has everything under control. God didn't lose control of life when you hit this problem like, oh my God. I mean, does God say that? No. Oh, my son. I didn't realize they would face such a big problem. What are we going to do? It's just not the way it works. There's nothing that you have faced that is bigger than God's power. Real faith is knowing that you are totally accepted by God and you're secure in His love, His power, and His purpose. I want you to get this. The devil wants to use problems to defeat you. But God wants to use those same problems to develop you. That's what this is about. God wants to develop something good in you. Which will it be? How are you going to face this? Now some of you right now, some of you sitting in this room are going through a hard time. You're in the midst of a trial. Maybe for you it's the trial of your life. I just came from a situation like that. I get home and I get another call from another pastor who's going through another trial. Not as severe, but it's still a trial. Maybe you're today going through troubles and you're going through situations. You're like, what are we going to do? What you need to know deep inside of your knower is that God is in control and God loves you. God is for you. And if you get that inside of you, no matter what you're facing, it changes your perspective. That's called wisdom. James ends with saying this in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, that word approved is an interesting word. It's the picture of a uh, vase that you take downtown to the pottery shop. You form it on the wheel, and it's a simple vase, but you've done your best to make it look good. And you get it all done, and you put it in the kiln to be fired. So it would become hard. And when you take it out, you would hold it up to the light and you would put it at all angles to make sure there's no cracks, there's no impurities, there's no weak areas in it. You put it all up. And then in the Greek times in which James was writing, in those time periods, if you looked at this face and it was perfect, you would turn it upside down and on the bottom, with special ink, you would write the word Dagamos. Dagamos. And it means approved, true. And what God is saying to us through James is when you go through troubles and you come out the other side, God's intent is that he would hold you up to the light for all to see that there's no cracks in you. You're not a crackpot. You're the real thing. And his glory can be seen in and through you. That's what this is about. That's what James says. It's time for us to grow up. We, we act like problems catch us by surprise like taxes do. 
but we all know they come. And he says his intent is he wants to write on your life the word dagamos, approved, receiving the crown of life. For myself, I hope for you. I want to grow up. I want to change. My goal in life is that the older I get, the more like Jesus I look. The more that when I speak, it has his heart. Yes, through this vessel. But on this vessel, I want the word dagamos stamped. Approved by God. Recognizing that you go through stuff, as do we all. We've provided today uh, an opportunity, if you would like, to get some prayer. We have some stations up here. They're called HELPS. One stands for healing, the other one for encounters with God. One is just going through hard things in life. Then P is for prophecy and S is for salvation. I don't know where you're at. I can guarantee there's probably not a one of you in this room that hasn't gone through some problems recently. If you're not in a problem now, you're coming out of a problem. Or you're going into a problem. And you know it. It's a part of life. It's inevitable. And so this might be a good time for you to get some prayer from some folks who are trusted folks that we have set into these stations that will just pray for you. You don't have to tell them any more than what you want to tell them. It's not like you have to blab out your whole life. Most times it's just enough to know that you want prayer and they're standing with you that God's glory would be seen in you and that you would have God's approval written on your life. He says no one takes a light and hides it, but you put it on a hill and you let the world see. That's what this is about. I want people to see that we're growing up, we're maturing. So would you bow your heads for just a moment? I know we have a luncheon coming up here. Grateful for that opportunity for us to join together as friends and family. Please, please, please stay. Stay. We want you to be there. Your presence is important. But before we go there, I want to give you an opportunity just to respond to the Lord. So if the team leaders could come up and just take your places, I would appreciate it. Just keep your head bowed while they come and get in place. Are you going through something today? Maybe inside, even you didn't want to come to church, you came to church because, well, I guess that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to go to church. But you've been going through it. And, and there's a part of you that feels like, you know, well, come hell or high water, and this water's getting pretty high. I don't know what's going to happen. But is there a part of you deep in your soul that says, I have decided I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. No turning back. And I'm not just going to grit my teeth and put up with this stuff. I'm going to say, God, can't you work something in me so that when I come through it, I come through it and think, I can almost look back. Maybe not right away, but with a little bit of time, I can look back and say, God, I thank you for those trials because they changed me. If that's your heart, you're saying, God, I'm going through stuff. 
I don't know where life is at. Maybe for you it's even a crisis of faith. Maybe it's like, how does this stuff work? And that's what this whole series is about, is making our faith work for us. Making our faith work when we're facing troubles and trials. Which we all do. Maybe for you it's, I've been walking with God a long time and it just seems like we don't get a break. I think sometimes God puts his best in the fire for the longest. He's a faithful, kind God. He's not wasting one iota of this trial. But if you would like prayer, you don't have to. If you, if you need to leave, you can leave. Or if you just need to go get your kids, that's okay. But if you would like prayer, I want to give you the opportunity to pray. I'm going to close in prayer. And then if you want prayer, the team leaders are up here at the different stations. You can go to one that applies to your situation. Maybe you feel like you need a word from God about a situation. So you go to the P for prophecy. Or maybe for you, it's just life stuff is happening and you go to L for life. The truth is it doesn't matter which one you go to. They'll pray for you. And they'll believe for God to do something. But let me pray for you. And I'm going to believe God for his touch. And he's going to help us to grow up. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to be here today. And every time I handle your word in front of people, every time I stand up here and speak what I believe your word is saying, there's that thing within me that quakes because I realize the awesomeness of that responsibility. And I don't take it lightly. I never am cavalier about it. Lord, I want it to be engaging. But most of all, I want your word to come forth. So Lord, for those that have been going through some stuff lately, maybe it's in their marriage. It's just been a challenging time. And things have been said that you wonder, can we ever fix that? And we get the paste back in the tube after it's come out. Or maybe it's in our family. Struggles with children and all that's going on for them. Maybe it's troubles in our workplace. Maybe it's troubles in our finance. Maybe it's trouble in our health. You're able to work all things together for good. All things for good to those who love you. And so, Lord, I'm asking for your grace to rest upon each one and that you would help us to grow up as a people. That's my earnest desire for myself and for my friends. And, Lord, as prayers are offered by the team members, I pray your anointing upon them that you would cause your countenance to be lifted upon them and give them peace. That you would make yourself real to them. The God of all comfort. The God of compassion. The God of mercy. That your anointing would rest upon each team leader as they pray for those who come forward. And then the rest of our time today, Father, as we go in and we have lunch together, Lord, let it be a time of celebration of joy in fellowship together. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.